Mark 12, 41. And he sat down opposite the treasury and began observing how the people were putting money into the treasury. And many rich people were putting in large sums. A poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which amount to a cent. Calling his disciples to him, he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put more than all the contributors to the treasury. For they have all put in out of their surplus, but she out of her poverty put in all she owned, all that she had to live on. Perhaps you have seen the portrait. A pressed white tablecloth covered with clean, shining dishes. And the family gathered around the table with with grins and smiles and excitement. Joyful faces, young and old. At the head of the table, the grandmother, dressed in an apron, is just setting down a huge golden brown turkey. And standing right behind her is the patriarch of the family, dressed in a black suit, grandpa, ready to carve the bird. Not grandma, the turkey. (laughs) It's a portrait of 20th century Americana. You probably have heard it called a Norman Rockwell Thanksgiving. And it's that picture that, that sort of epitomizes or attempts to epitomize a vision of idyllic Thanksgiving in American life back in the 1940s. It was actually first published in March of 1943. And it was published in a response to uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt's famous Four Freedoms speech. And so it was one of the four freedoms. Uh, Norman Rockwell did four paintings, one for each of the freedoms in this speech. And this was one of them, and that was the Thanksgiving painting, that iconic painting entitled Freedom from Want. Freedom from Want. And in Rockwell's vision, that was it. Freedom from Want, that picture of the family gathered around the table, the turkey ready to be served, everyone dressed nicely, everyone excited for the day and for the meal and for the fellowship. But as I looked at that painting yet again this week, I I thought about, you know, that is not what Thanksgiving is. As a matter of fact, we have an upside-down view, I think, of what Thanksgiving truly is. It is not freedom from want. It's not freedom from want. In 1610, the Jamestown colonists recognized that. After the most severe winter referred to as the starving time, they called for a day of Thanksgiving. 1610. The original 409 colonists now numbered after that winter 60. And yet they remained thankful. They called for a day of thanksgiving. On December 4th, 1619, just nine years later, 38 colonists, known as the Berkeley Hundred, because that's how they started out, landed in another part of Virginia and they proclaimed, quote, We ordain that the day of our ship's arrival in the land of Virginia shall be yearly and perpetually kept holy, note that, kept holy as a day of thanksgiving to Almighty God. From that point forward, though it was not yet declared a national holiday, Thanksgiving was celebrated in New England every year annually at the time of the, of the harvest, following the autumn harvest. Finally, 244 years later, On October the 3rd, 1863, Abraham Lincoln spoke these classic words, No human counsel hath devised, nor hath any mortal hand worked out these great things. They are the gracious gifts of the Most High God, who, while dealing with us in anger for our sins, hath nevertheless remembered mercy. 
I do therefore invite my fellow citizens in every part of the United States and those who are sojourning in foreign lands to set apart and observe the last Thursday in November next as a day of thanksgiving and praise to our beneficent Father who dwelleth in heaven. So there's just a snapshot background of Thanksgiving, of of where it came from. Why we still, even this Thursday, continue to celebrate Thanksgiving. It is not Rockwell's portrait. It is not the time of feasting, though feasting is good. It is a time of recognizing the blessing of God. But even that statement can put us upside down. The time of recognizing the blessing of God. Yeah, but what if I have no blessing? What if in my life, I'm sitting here and I don't even have enough to pay for the meal? I don't have enough to put it together. Or perhaps, I don't have the family to share it with. Rick, you're talking about this idyllic picture. Well, it's not my life. Does that change? Thanksgiving. True Thanksgiving, gang, is not freedom from want. Let me say it again. True thanksgiving is not about freedom from want. And that is something that the widow in the story before us clearly understood. And I want to challenge you to consider this morning how your giving compares to her giving. Oh, honey, he just made a left turn into giving. Did you hear how he did that? Before we get to thanksgiving, this week. We're going to take a look at our giving. Period. But let me give you this disclaimer before we go on. <laughs> it's funny, every time I've talked about giving, and I went back and looked at some old notes and thought through this, because I've, I've done it from time to time, talked about giving over the last several years here at the bridge. Not recently. But every time I've talked about it, I have to give a disclaimer. And here it is. Same disclaimer that I have given before, actually. This teaching this morning has absolutely nothing to do with where this church is at financially. You might be happy to hear that we actually netted $150,000 this year in giving. That's beyond all the ministry. That's beyond uh, money set aside for building. It's beyond these other things. $150,000 that is just the generosity of the fellowship. So it has nothing to do with where we're at. This is not Pastor Rick and the elders deciding it's time to dig a little bit. You know? <laughs> time to get a little more out of them. You know, the budget, we're kind of tight. It's not where we're at financially. This is where we're at biblically. I made a promise when we started the bridge. I would talk about money only when God talked about money. And I wouldn't bring it up any other time because it's really not my concern. But it is His concern, and from time to time He brings it before us. At the previous church I served at, actually a couple churches back in Southern California, every November we had a very special Sunday, which was Thank Offering Sunday, where we had an additional offering. Attendance was always leaner on those Sundays. But the Thank Offering was for the purpose of catching up the church coffers. I didn't even know what a coffer was. I thought that's where you put dead people. I'm pretty sure here at the bridge we don't have coffers aside from those of you who end up hacking in the background of recorded teachings on the website There, there they are the Lord the Lord never approaches the issue of giving in the scriptures from a needs based perspective Note that. God never talks to His people about giving because 
he's a little short. He's running a little lean. I mean, honestly, does anyone think that God needs your money? Or that He needs your financial aid? Or perhaps the occasional loan? Keep your finger in Mark 12 and go back to Psalm 50. In Psalm 50, verse 9, God declares the following. I shall take no young bull out of your house. Which basically means God's going to take no bull from you. (laughs) No male goats out of your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountains. And everything that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world is mine and all it contains. Shall I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of male goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. And pay your vows to the Most High. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I shall rescue you. And you will honor me. Skip down to verse 23 at the end of the chapter. He says, He who offers a sacrifice of thanksgiving honors me. And to him who orders his way aright, I shall show the salvation of God. He who offers a sacrifice of thanksgiving honors me. That's what the widow in our story is up to. Back to Mark chapter 12. The widow that Jesus sees there at the temple treasury offers a sacrifice of thanksgiving. It's not freedom from want. It is a sacrifice of thanksgiving. And we need to consider that this morning. What does that mean? What does it mean? Before we get around to giving thanks this Thursday, what is a sacrifice of thanksgiving? Chuck Smith said, God doesn't measure your gifts by the amount. Never. But by what it costs you. The true measure of your gift. David was sent by the prophet Gad to build an altar to the Lord on what would become, as it is today, the Temple Mount. They're on Mount Moriah in Jerusalem. Gad said, go offer to the Lord there. So David goes, well that area was owned by a man named Arunia. And and this man told David, no, I'll give it to you. In fact, I'll give you the oxen for the sacrifice and the wood for the burning and the land. You can have it. And David said, 2 Samuel 24.24, No, I will surely buy it from you for a price, for I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God, which cost me nothing. That's a sacrifice of thanksgiving. I'm not going to take what was freely given to me and turn it around and give it as a gift. That's regifting. <laughs> the sacrifice of thanksgiving. Instead of asking, what can I afford to give, which is what many of us, myself included, have asked over the years, what can I afford to give? The question ought to be, what can I give that will cost me something? 2 Corinthians 9 6. The Apostle Paul wrote, He who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Do you get there's a there's a, a spiritual truth in this? That the amount that you give, and I'm talking about money and giving, because that's what Paul was talking about, the amount that you give will be directly connected to the amount that you receive, the bounty that you receive. Paul says, each one must do as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly 
or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now that word cheerful, you Bible students have heard it before, is hilaros. It's where we get our word hilarious. And yet, we kind of use it wrongly. It doesn't mean a crazy state of affected laughter, you know. It's not out of control. You're not going to find anybody back by the box in the back dropping money in there and just going, <laughs> you know. That's, that would be hilarious giving. What the Greek word specifically indicates is a joyful, a glad, or a happy heart. Just true joy. God loves a joyful, a cheerful giver. So where are you in terms of your giving this morning? Now I can look at each one of you in the eye and ask the question because I have no idea what anybody in this fellowship gives. Hallelujah, praise the Lord, you don't want Rick's hands in the money. I don't know what anybody gives. Our shepherds don't know what people give. We, we try and do a blind system of counting even so that, so that it's not out there what, what each individual gives. That is between you and the Lord. That's where it needs to remain. But where are you in terms of your giving? What is your gut reaction to stories like, like the widow's story here? A famed preacher named Clovis Chapel once said the following, I have never felt any hesitation in speaking to my congregation about money. I thrill to it. I revel in it. I love to see the generous enjoy it, and I love to watch the stingy suffer. (laughs) I love that. For some, teaching on giving and tithing is a great encouragement because it encourages you in that faith decision. For others, it makes them squirm in their seat. It's a little uncomfortable. As it was for me for 35 years of my life. Maybe that's something else you should know before I speak another word. Is I sat in church for 35 years squirming every time money was brought up because I gave zilch. In the first three ministries in which I served, I gave my church zilch in terms of money. Because it didn't make any sense to me. I'm hired, I'm doing a job, you're paying me, and I'm giving the money back? I just, I never thought it through. And then when Cheryl began to bring it up to me, as you husbands, you know, sometimes your wives do, why don't we give? Ah, shut up. No, when she would, she would bring it up. And I'd say, looking at the books, there is no way we can turn around and start doing this. Well, can't we give something? And I'm like, we get to Compassion International. We have a child. I mean, that's something. Until I found out it was like 0.001%. So I struggled with this for a long, long time. Until God finally got a hold of me. In fact, there was a word He gave me, specifically for me in those days, about what my attitude toward giving was. You know what the word is? Stronghold. Rick, this is a stronghold. I was praying. I was journaling. I think I've shared this many years ago. I shared this here. But I was journaling and and, and writing, Lord, I just want to be close to You. I want everything out of the way. I want a clear heart before You. And all of a sudden, God said, You have a stronghold in Your life. And what's that? It's Your attitude toward giving. I'm at home on my couch, no church around me, and I was squirming. I want to share with you a little bit of what I've understood since that time. What God has taught me. And I hope will will teach each of us this morning. 
I don't want you to be defensive. Again, this is, this is an issue between you and the Lord. If you give nothing, if you've never really given, or if you give what you would consider across a year, a few bucks here, a few bucks there, drop some coin just to try and make yourself feel a little better, listen, there is supposed to be, there was intended to be from the beginning, joy in the giving. God set this whole thing up that there would be an interaction between us and Him that did involve our money and would be a joyful thing. And let me add this, by the way. If you give begrudgingly, don't do it. Don't. I don't want anybody writing a check here going... (laughs) You know, dropping it in the box a little loudly, you know, slapping the top... There. Satisfied? If you have a grudging spirit, if you want to give with strings attached, give it somewhere else. Talk more about that in a minute. Why talk about giving it all? Why not just let, you know, sleeping wallets lie? Listen, my fellow Americans, Whatever our personal financial situations may be, we are among the wealthiest people in all of history. And you may be sitting here this morning wondering how you're going to pay your next bill, but I'll tell you what, if you can run through McDonald's this afternoon, you're wealthy. If you have choice in what you do with even some aspect of your money, you're wealthy. And the Apostle Paul told Pastor Timothy... In 1 Timothy 6.17, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. We are here this morning so that we may take hold of that which is life indeed. That's why we have to talk about money. That's why we got to deal with our, with our giving so that we can truly take hold of that which is life indeed. Now, before we get back to the widow, we need to back up just a bit in the chapter. Take a run at it, because those of you who are Wednesday, you know there are things going on in chapter 12. Things that Mark connects to the widow's story. In fact, the widow's story is a phenomenal, an amazing, a stunning summation of everything that has just happened that Mark details in the 12th chapter. Mark chapter 12 is a parade of inspection and scrutiny. The chief priests, the Pharisees, the Herodians, the Sadducees, the scribes, they're all coming at Jesus. Delegation after delegation, one group after another, scrutinizing everything He has to say. Trying to trip Him up. Asking difficult questions. Marching in waves against Jesus in an attempt to find fault with Jesus. And Mark tells us in verse 28, He answered them well. I like that. One of the scribes is watching from the side. Sees all of these delegations coming at Jesus. Hears all the answers Jesus is giving. And they are just brilliant. And the scribe recognizes he answered them well. And we're told in verse 37 that large crowds of people were enjoying. They just enjoyed listening to him. As I know we would. 
They were hanging on His every word. And then Jesus sounds a warning. Watch this, verse 38. In His teaching, He was saying, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like respectful greetings in the marketplaces and chief seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets who, verse 40, devour widows' houses and for appearance sake offer long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. This warning and the widow's story are not placed randomly together. We go on into the story of the widow and her giving. Because there is a dramatic contrast in the faith of this widow and in the fault-finding of all the religious leaders that were coming at Jesus. You get one after the other, these waves of people coming at Jesus. And then ultimately Jesus sounds a warning against those who would devour widows' houses. And guess what? The next story we see a widow at the offering plate. We see a widow by the box. We see a widow giving. This is absolutely intentional. And notice specifically what it says in verse 40 again. Who devour widows' houses and for appearance's sake offer long prayers, these will receive greater condemnation. It is entirely likely that this widow's house had been devoured. That what is described in verse 40 is what had happened. It's the background to this widow coming to the treasury. See, you need to understand that in Jesus' day, the scribes did more than just copy the law. They also copied legal documents. They also wrote down for people last wills and testaments. And apparently, they were very good at taking widows to the cleaners. Very good at talking them in to signing over the entire estate left by the husband. Signing over the inheritance because now the church needs to take care of you. Now it's our responsibility to look over your assets. And so you need to turn them over to us. Turn them over to the temple and we'll look after them for you. They were actually known in exchange to come then over to the widow's house and offer long and articulate and beautiful prayers of covering over the widow, over her livelihood, pretentious. And Jesus said these will receive a greater condemnation. Do you know what that means? That means that there is a greater condemnation for some than for others. These will receive a greater condemnation. Greater than who? Greater than those who don't know any better. Which indicates that hell may be hotter in some regions than in others. (laughs) That judgment may be heavier on certain ones than on others. I mean, I would think going to hell is just going to hell. You know? How could it possibly be worse? There is greater condemnation for those who know the truth and yet turn away from it. Or act in complete and absolute rebellion to it. I mean, to sin and rebel against Jesus, that's one thing, especially if you're not sure what you're doing or or if there's a vagueness about it. But to do so with a religious charade, gang, that is damnable to the worst place. And according to Jesus, it's far worse than simply rebelling, which is bad enough. Both types of people are condemned, but the holy huckster is far more condemned. And the teachers of Israel knew better, or should have known better, as to how to treat the widows among them. Psalm 68.5, A father of the fatherless and a judge for the widows is God in His holy habitation. 
Psalm 146.9, the Lord protects the strangers. He supports the fatherless and the widow, but He thwarts the way of the wicked. Isaiah 1.17, learn to do good, seek justice, reprove the ruthless, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. And this may be of what uh, may have been partially what motivated James to write in James one twenty seven, pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this: to visit orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself unstained by the world. James also wrote a very profound. And serious statement, James 3.1, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. There is stricter judgment on those who teach. Because if you teach, you know what you're talking about. If you teach, you know what the Bible says. Part of my issue with giving so many years ago was I was coming up against having to teach on it. How do I do this? How do I teach this, but I don't live it? And it's the constraint, truly, of of teaching through the Bible. There have been all kinds of things over the years that I've come right up against the wall. Because how can I teach this and do the opposite? How can I tell you, but then I'm going to go do something else? And by the way, when I ask you to hold me to account in the teaching of the Word, it isn't just to be sure that Pastor Rick is doctrinally sound. I am asking you to help me avoid a stricter judgment. I'm asking you to come alongside me and help me not be one of those who receives a greater condemnation because I misrepresented or mistaught the Word. So I plead with you as brothers and sisters of mine to walk with me in this. Verse 41. So with that in the background... He sat down opposite the treasury. So Jesus now has just left the outer court of the Gentiles, there in the temple courts. He's gone inside. He's entered now the court of women. The court of the Gentiles is typically where Jesus did most of His teaching. Well, He is left there and He goes into the court of women. And against the wall of this court hung 13 trumpet-shaped containers. In fact, they were just called the trumpets, the 13 trumpets. They looked like shofars, but they were containers hung on the wall there for people to give gifts to the temple and to help the poor. And the Mishnah tells us about that, describes those. Jesus took a seat on the wall, up against the wall, in the court of women, across from these. And this area, this whole area, was referred to often as the treasury. But that's where the people could give. Jesus sits down and watches people give. Listen. I think He still watches people give. And we might be able to fool ourselves. We might be able to slip past the box. Or we may make a big deal when we're dropping something into the box. Jesus watches people give. What? He watches me? Outrageous! Outlandish! That's none of His business! That's between me and... I knew it. Those church types are always trying to get into my wallet. (laughs) Listen, your giving is of great interest to Jesus. Or your lack of giving is of great interest to Jesus. Money matters to Jesus. 17 of His 38 parables are about possessions and money. Did you know that? The Bible deals with money 
eight times more than it talks about faith. The Bible talks about money seven times more than it talks about prayer. And the Bible talks about money three times more than it talks about love. That's remarkable. And here, in the treasury, Jesus watches the trumpets just as I believe He watches the box. Because money is an issue of the heart. It is not an issue of the wallet. It is not an issue of your income. It is not an issue of your assets. It is an issue of the heart. And that is Jesus' primary concern in your life. And anything that would cause blockage in the cardio region, Jesus is concerned with, concerned about. And He looks at the heart and He watches people give. (coughs) Matthew 6.21, Jesus said, Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Matthew 6.24, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. can't do it. By the way, when he says, where your treasure is there, your heart will be also, you want to know what changed in my life? When Cheryl and I started to give, I suddenly stopped feeling like a hired hand and I started feeling like a part of the body. For the first time in my ministry life, I started realizing, wow, this fellowship is my fellowship. This matters to me. It's not just a job to me. Oh, you know, I did ministry and I loved the Lord and, and I was doing it for Him, but it was pretty much me serving for Him and serving the church for Him, but I never felt part of the churches in which I served until we started to give. And then suddenly my treasure was there. So guess what? My heart was there. And if you're having trouble having your heart in this fellowship, then maybe you should look at how you're giving because I have a feeling the two may be connected. By the way, did you catch what Jesus was watching? He sat down opposite the treasury and He began observing how the people were putting money into the treasury and many rich people were putting in large sums. He was not observing how much they gave. He was observing how they gave. The Greek word for how there is pos, and it means after what manner or or in what way they were giving. It was an attitude thing. It was a heart thing. How are they going about this? In other words, Jesus is watching and He's noticing what characterized people's giving into the treasury. What was going on with the heart? Was it showy or was it subtle? Was it miserable Or was it cheerful? Was it prideful or faithful? Was it begrudging or was it with thanksgiving? We're told here that many rich people were putting in large sums. The Greek word for large there, it literally means many, as in plink, plank, plunk. They were putting in many sums. So the rich people, rather than you know just dropping the bag of money in there, were apparently opening up the bag and going, ba-bank, 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 check me out! <laughs> you know, it's like Lucy in the Charlie Brown Christmas special. Oh, the clinking sound of nickels. Oh, I just love that sound. You know, nickels, nickels, nickels. What a wonderful sound. <laughs> Jesus was not sitting in judgment of the wealthy gang, but it is clear their generosity was a a bit conspicuous in their giving. Matthew 6, verse 2, Jesus said, When you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you, 
Well, now that's a completely different perspective of sounding the trumpet, isn't it? If the trumpet is the offering box and the sound is your money going in. Don't sound the trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets so that they may be honored by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But when you give to the poor, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving will be in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And that, by the way, is part of the reason we put a box in the back rather than passing trays. And I'll tell you, I was a little nervous. I knew, you know, back when we started this fellowship, we said we don't, we want to make sure people have opportunity to give, but we don't want to make that, you know, the focus as it's coming around. And I don't know if you did this when we were kids, we had the, the offering place and they'd come around and, and I realized that if you, if you flick the bottom of it with a couple of fingers, it sounded like you just put something in. <laughs> it did. Yeah, it come around. <laughs> I'm good to go. My parents started the church and and, uh, I would always help take up the offering and my dad would make me put it back. (laughs) To be fair, some of these rich people were good, faithful, generous givers. And we have to be fair about that because I've also recognized something in the church that some of the most generous people are also some of the most wealthy. And I think the reason God has given them that wealth is because He knows their heart is right. They can handle it. Part of the reason I think God hasn't given me great wealth. But that's another topic. <laughs> this is not an indictment on their giving as Jesus is watching. At least they were giving. And, and you got to note that. The rich people who were putting in large sums, praise the Lord, they were putting in. They were giving, at least. But again, Jesus doesn't measure how much we give based on how much we put in, as much as maybe how much is left after we have put in. What's the residual? What are you hanging on to? More on that in just a minute. If you consider yourself to be financially blessed or well-off, at the risk of sounding overtly liberal, the Lord expects you to give liberally. Note this, 2 Corinthians 9, verse 10. He who supplied seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in everything. Right on, Lord. Why? For all liberality. The reason why God enriches anybody's life, the reason why He gives you more is so that you can give more. So if you're finding yourself increased in blessing, it's because God's saying, I want you to give more. You'll be enriched in everything for all liberality, which Paul says through us is producing, oh, thanksgiving to God. That's not thanksgiving. That's not freedom from want. There's thanksgiving in the giving. Now I know, I understand we're talking about how people give and not so much about how much we give. But I know some questions are going to follow this teaching. So, let's just clear it up right up front. How much should we give? How much should we give? Well, Rick, doesn't the New Testament leave it up to the individual? And Pastor Rick, are you about to go from preaching to meddling? 2 Corinthians 9.7, the New Testament, Paul says each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart. Well, sounds like there's some choice. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 2. 
Paul wrote on the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper so that no collections be made when I come. So as he has purposed in his heart, as he has, or as he may prosper, sounds like we are freed up from the legalistic Old Testament standard of tithing. And I've heard that argument many times. Let me give you uh, four things just to quickly note. Three or four. First of all, first of all, we need to we need to honestly understand the difference between tithing and offering because a lot of people don't. A lot of people say, "Where do we put our gifts and tithes?" And what they're giving is not a tithe. And I just want you to understand this clearly: that offerings are any amount. Offerings can be greater or lesser than a tithe. But an offering is just whatever you give. Tithes, by definition, tithing is 10%. In fact, by specific biblical definition, tithing is 10% of your gross income, not of your income after taxes. It's not the net, it's the gross. And by Old Testament standards, it's a first fruits offering, which means it's the first 10% off the top. God said to Israel, I want you to live on 90%. I want the first 10% to be given. And the 90% that's left, that's yours by my grace because honestly it's all His anyway, right? So you live on 90% of what you do and the first 10%, even before you write the first check, before the mortgage check goes out, before you pay Puget Sound Energy, before it goes to the propane company, the first check is to the Lord. 10%. That's tithing if, if you determine to tithe. Secondly, I think we need to not only break out tithing from offering, we need to behold the blessing of tithing. I want you to understand tithing is a blessing. Turn back to the book of Malachi. The last book of the Hebrew Scriptures. It's a place that pastors love to go when talking about giving. Malachi chapter 3. Now Rick... Let's just be clear, you have just gone back to the Old Testament. I know. I get it. It's a funny funny conversation. And I've had it several times over the years with people at church. I am a New Testament person, not an Old Testament. Therefore, I don't tithe because I don't want to be stuck in legalism. Okay? Malachi 3, verse 8. Will a man rob God, yet you are robbing me? But you say, how have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, so that there may be food in my house. And test me, watch this, test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows, then I will rebuke the devourer for you. Which, by the way, the devourer, that would be when the refrigerator goes out. (laughs) That would be when there's some home issue. When the car won't start. When you need new tires. Because they have rubber, but that's about it. When things go wrong in our lives, that's the devourer, gang. And you know what I'm talking about. You're having trouble making it to the next paycheck and suddenly something goes out. And it's like, get out the credit card. How else are we going to cover this? God says, test me. This is one of the few times in all of Scripture God says, I want you to test me. Put me to the test. Give 10% tithe and then see what I do. See if I'm faithful to follow through. 
See if I won't open up the windows of heaven and pour out of my storehouses into yours if you just trust me in this. This is not a legal thing. This is not about keeping law. This is God saying, I want to show my faithfulness to you and one way to do it is for you to lop off 10% from the top and then watch me turn it back around. Watch what I do. I will rebuke the devourer. He says back in verse 10, I'll pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. You know the old standard. You can't outgive God. Now that is a freaky thing to think about. You can't do You cannot outgive God. You cannot give more than He will provide. He will not be a debtor to any man. So if you give a certain amount, God's not going to go, oh wow, I, I'm going to have to owe that to you. I'll get it back to you. Trust me on that. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of the ground, nor will your vine in the field cast its grapes, that is, lose its grapes, says the Lord of hosts. All the nations will call you blessed, for you shall be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. That's God's attitude about giving, about tithing, about 10%. He says, test me. Give it a shot. See what happens. At the height of the Depression era, the average U.S. per capita charitable giving, and I've shared this before, but it's been a few years. At the height of the Depression, the average giving in the United States was 4% per household. 4%. Since the Depression, income, even with this current recession that we are struggling to get out of, since the Depression, income in the United States of America has increased 500%. What is the average giving of in the United States per household today? 1%. 4% in the Depression, 1% today is average. Among those who declare faith in Jesus Christ, yeah, <laughs> Catholics give an average of 1.5%. So, hey, they're 0.5% above the rest of the nation. Protestants, your denominational churches, with all the guilt that comes with it, average 2.8%. Evangelicals, those of us who buy into grace, are just under 4%. We are not even up to Great Depression levels of giving. You see what happens when income increases by the work of man rather than by the blessing of God? When it's by what we do, we hold on to it. When we recognize the gift, the blessing comes from God, it's easier to let go of. Some say 10% is too much, Rick. I know you're pushing for this. (laughs) Besides, I don't want to be limited by the law. Well, that's not the problem. The problem is we end up limiting our faith. I'm not going to do that tithe thing because that makes me a legalist. No, what you're doing is you're limiting your own ability to believe God for His promises. If these statistics are an accurate representation of the church today, in my opinion, we are holding on too tight. And the tighter we hold on, the more difficult it will be for our faith to grow. So Pastor Rick, you think people should tithe? No, I don't. What? Then why all that time on tithing? I think tithing is a great place to start trusting God. I don't believe tithing is the standard where we all hit and stop. 
but that we tithe and then we offer. Oh, brother. I believe that we begin trusting the Lord. You really want to take a leap of faith. You really want to test God in this, as He said, then start by tithing. And then offer beyond that as the Lord blesses you. Now, just as a principle, not as a law, but as a principle of giving. And some might say, okay, well, then can I divvy up my 10%? Can I give, you know, like 3% to the church and 2% to Compassion International and 5% to feed starving children, namely my own? (laughs) Can I do that? Is that okay? Listen, you can do whatever you want because we're not under law, we're under grace. Just know that Jesus is watching the treasury. He's watching your giving. No, not... He's watching your giving because He is watching your heart. His eyes are on your heart. And He wants you to be free to enter into the joy of thanksgiving. Tithing, by the way, was never the business of law, but of faith. In fact, tithing predated the law of Moses. Did you know that? It wasn't set up in the law. It happened before the law. Back in Genesis 14, verses 17 through 20, Abraham gave Melchizedek a tithe of worship. Melchizedek. Who's Melchizedek? See Hebrews chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. Read that and come back and tell me who you think Melchizedek was. King Melchizedek, King of Salem, who comes out and meets Abraham. But I'll tell you this much, Jesus was around long before the first Christmas. And I have a sense that the Melchizedek that Abraham tithes to and offers worship to in Genesis 14 was very likely Jesus Himself. So the first tithe came even before the law. Tithing as a business of faith, here's the last thing to note, we'll get back to the widow. Tithing as a business of faith. Stay with me. Tithing as the business of faith is none of your business. The only decision I get to make when it comes to tithing is whether or not to do it. But once I have tithed, it is none of my business where it goes from there. Does the widow ask for a receipt? Do we see in the story her requesting an audience with the temple treasurer to go over the books? Does she question where the money is going or how it's being spent? No. And by the way, the money that the widow gives was being overseen by some very unscrupulous priests. I can guarantee the money going into the treasury did not always go to the most godly reasons. Honey, I think the pastor's trying to deter us from seeing the church books. Red flag! Danger, Will Robinson! Let's get out of here! I am not trying to deter anyone from seeing the church books. What I'm saying, and please hear this by faith, please hear this by faith. If you find yourself second-guessing church expenditures, the first thing you need to do is examine your own heart before the Lord. If you find yourself having trouble trusting the decisions of those who handle church finances, what's going on with your heart? I'm not saying that staff is flawless here. I'm not saying that shepherd decisions will always be absolutely right. I can tell you they'll always be prayed over. But we are capable of of great error. Absolutely. And I know what I'm saying might offend some. 
And I'm not recommending that anyone just blindly follow a man. But listen, if giving is truly an issue of faith as it was for the widow, where it goes once you've given it is none of your business. Because you've given it in faith. If you make it your business once you've given it, it is no longer a matter of faith. Now it's a matter of charity. I want to see the books. I want to know where every dollar... Now I do that. Like with Compassion International. One of the reasons that I support Compassion International, why Cheryl and I have some kids through Compassion, is because I know exactly what it's like. 85, 86% of every dollar goes to the kid and does not go to administration. And when I give to charitable organizations, I want to know where's the money going. But that's not faith giving. That's giving by my own choice. When I give to the church, when I drop it in the box... Once it leaves my hands, it's not my concern. It is not my business. Because that, gang, is not an act of giving. It is an act of faith. Mark my words, by the way, if it's being wrongly spent, God is going to call all poor stewards to account for how they spent His money. Because again, once it leaves your hands, even before it leaves your hands, it's His money anyway. Once it goes into the box, it's His money. So don't think for a moment that the finance team or the shepherds don't pray with some trepidation about how money is spent. It's His. We recognize that. What was Jesus interested in? Not in the amount of the giving, not even where the gift was going. Jesus was focused on, He's watching people's hearts. He's focused on the how of the heart. Where the giving was coming from by faith. Enter the poor, precious widow. Verse 42, Mark 12. Poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which amount to a cent. Now, that's kind of loose just to kind of give us a picture. It was nothing. It was paltry what she had to give. The Greek word for coins there is lepta. The lepta, lepta literally means thin, because these were the two thinnest, smallest copper coins of the day. That you could bend them, they were so tiny. You can buy them in Israel now. Like a hundred for a buck. Tiny little things. These two leptas, they equal what's called a quadrans, where it says ascent. Ascent is the word quadrans in the Greek, which was one sixty-fourth of a Roman denarius. What does that mean? The Roman denarius was a day's wage back in Jesus' day. Now I was trying to do a comparison. What would that be today? How much would that be would the widow be given by today's standards? Remember, we, we're in the wealthiest nation ever in history. Based on our national minimum wage, which is seven twenty-five an hour, and an eight-hour day, a denarius, uh, or one sixty-fourth of a denarius, would be one dollar. Be a buck. But listen, and this just this blows away every act of generosity I have ever foolishly taken pride in. This poor widow didn't tithe. She didn't give 50%. You know, she had two coins. She could have given one and saved the other for a bag of chips or something. This poor widow gave 100%. I don't know anybody who's done that. I've never seen that before. She gave 100%... And by that standard, she outgave everybody who was giving in the treasury that day, calling his disciples to him. 
And you can almost hear excitement in Jesus' voice. He sees the widow. He sees what's going on. The last two cents she had to live on, her anything she had, that was it. 100%. Drops it in. And Jesus goes, guys, come here. Come here. And He says, truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all the contributors to the treasury. For they all put in out of their surplus. But she out of her poverty put in all that she owned, all that she had to live on. How could she do that? Faith. She did it because she knew God was her provider. She knew if I drop both of these coins today, God's going to feed me tonight. God's going to clothe me tomorrow. God is going to provide for me as I trust in Him And so she gave it all. And gang, that is thanksgiving from want. Most of us are going to enjoy thanksgiving from our surplus. She offered thanksgiving as a sacrifice, thanksgiving from want. She had nothing tucked in the mattress back home, nothing set aside in savings, nothing, no portfolio to fall back on. She gave all she had. And what's remarkable and what really stunned me this week in reading this story again is I am most faith-filled when I give from a position of want. Not because I've got enough to give, therefore I give. No, I don't have enough to give, so I give. And when I do that, when I have done that in my life, given when we did not have it to give, tithe when we could not afford to tithe, every single time gain, God has turned around and blessed it. He gave you the money back? Not necessarily. But I'll tell you what He did do. He increased faith. He expands joy. There is something remarkably freeing about giving when you don't have it to give. That's thanksgiving from what? I am least thankful when I've got all I need and I don't really even need Him. That never generates thankfulness. That generates freedom from want and the Thanksgiving table and Grandma with the huge turkey and they got all they need. Why would they need God to show up at that dinner? (coughs) See, that was the issue with the fault-finding, scrutinizing, Jesus-bashing critics. They had no Thanksgiving in their heart. When Jesus saw this widow offering a sacrifice of Thanksgiving, man, for Him, after that day of conversation and scrutiny, it must have been like a breath of fresh air. Here's someone who gets it. Here's a poor widow who, man, she understands. And we need to learn that all of our thanksgiving, it comes out of our want. It comes out of our poverty, not out of our plenty. Thanksgiving is when you can say, God, thank you, because nothing that I have is earned by me. Nothing that I have comes from my hard work. It's your blessing. Thank you, Lord. At the end of their wilderness wandering... The end of Moses' life. Book of Deuteronomy. He spoke to all the people of Israel. He said in Deuteronomy 8.16, In the wilderness God fed you manna, which your fathers did not know, that He might humble you and that He might test you to do good for you in the end. Don't miss that. To do good for you in the end. may not have seemed like it at the time, but He was working in your hearts to do good to you. And Moses said, Otherwise you may say in your heart, My power and the strength of my hand made me my wealth. Rockwell and Roosevelt got it wrong. It is not freedom from want that matters. It is thanksgiving from want that matters. And gang, it doesn't matter if you have a tidy little nest egg or your nest is completely bare. 
it doesn't matter this morning if you would be considered wealthy or poor or someone in between. We all, we all come to Jesus from a place of want. Don't we? Isn't that the reality? That when you stand before the Lord, you have nothing that you can truly give Him. Nothing to offer. We are absolutely impoverished. And anything we have, James tells us, James 1.17, every good, every good thing given, every perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Now I've, I've joked with the Wednesday night group a couple of times about Obama's phrase, you didn't build that. He was wrong in saying the government did it. We've got to skip right past the United States government and recognize every good thing given, every perfect gift came from God. I didn't build that. So in that case, the president was right. The Jamestown colonists understood thanksgiving from want. The Berkeley Hundred understood thanksgiving from want. And this poor widow absolutely got it. They were all thanksgivers from want. And it's my hope that we might learn to give that way, thankfully, not from our wealth, but to give out of our want. Not from our surplus, but to learn how to give from our shortage. Not in our greatness, but by His grace. That's thanksgiving. Jesus sat there, across from the treasury, watching this woman give all she had to give. And I really wonder if it wasn't encouraging for Jesus 2 Corinthians 8 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you through His poverty might become rich. Holy Father, we are so blessed. We are so provided for. We are so wealthy. We are so rich. Every one of us, Father. We have been given far beyond anything that we deserve. And we recognize this, Lord. And we thank You for that, Lord. But honestly, Father, I'm trying to learn here something. And that is how to, how to be thankful, not for all that I've been given, all the provision, but thankful simply that I know You even if I have nothing. Thankful in a position of shortage. Thankful when I don't have enough to make it through the month. Thankful, Father, when I lack. Lord Jesus, it is from the position of lack that we stand before You this morning because as sinners in this world, we lack everything we need for salvation. There is no amount of money that can buy our way into heaven. And yet you gave 100% of all you had to give in giving your life, your blood, that we could be saved people. That out of your poverty we might become rich, not in material things, but in spiritual. And rich unto eternity. And we owe you everything. And I pray, Father, you would increase our faith that we might as a fellowship be joyful givers, thankful givers, not basing our giving on what we have, but trusting You for who You are. We bless Your name. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.